Today we continue in our study on the sin of selfishness, and this will be our last message in this mini-series for the month of November. We're going to be looking here at the aspect that selfishness is at the center of church conflict in James chapter 4. Before we get to that, I thought you might enjoy this story. There was an elderly man who had a serious hearing problem for many years. Maybe some of you can identify with that this morning. (laughs) He went to the doctor and was fitted with this state-of-the-art, high-tech set of hearing aids, and he basically could hear 100% with them. He went back a month later for a checkup, and the doctor said, wow, your hearing is perfect. Your family must be so excited that you can hear again. He said, no, I haven't told my family yet. (laughs) Oh, it gets better. It gets better. I just sit around and listen to the different conversations, and I've changed my will three times. (laughs) Listening is important, isn't it? I hope that we'll listen today to the Word of God and learn together how we can overcome selfishness in our church. We we saw in, in James 4 that the writer of Scripture begins that chapter with identifying the source of all conflict. And the source of all conflict, of course, is pride, selfishness, and in a church that gets really ugly really fast and is very devastating. And so I just want to walk us through this passage, James chapter 4, the first several verses, not the entire chapter, but just the first several verses. And I want to highlight some practical things that I think will help us today in dying to self as it relates to our family, our faith community, so that we can relate to one another well in humility and passionately pursue God together in this way. That truly makes for a healthy and effective faith community, local assembly, and I hope that we will pursue all of that together today. So as we look at our text this morning, I just want to point out that the first step that I want to talk to you about is that we should be our own judge by calling out our own selfish motives. If you go back to the passage, if you want to join me there in James chapter 4, you'll see very quickly that we need to be careful to be our own judge. What causes fights and quarrels among you, Scripture says? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? So the battle that is going on in our hearts is where we need to really pay attention and to be our own judge, and to be very transparent by calling out our own selfish motives. We know when this is going on. We know more than anyone else when our motives are wrong, and when we are motivated by self, and and we set ourselves in a course of action as a result of those selfish motivations that is so destructive, that sows discord, that, that just causes all kinds of strife in any group of people that we relate, especially the faith community. And so we need to set ourselves up as our own judge and be very quick to call ourselves out on selfish motives. 
Let me remind you of what Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23 says. And you have white space and minimal things on the screen this morning, so feel free to write down things that, that apply to you and that will be helpful. But one of those should probably be Proverbs 4.23. It says, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Think about that. Everything you do flows from it. Uh, one translation says, for out of it are the issues of life. Everything about your life flows out of your heart. These words of wisdom from King Solomon emphasize the importance of protecting our innermost being. Our heart is the source of our thoughts, attitudes, beliefs, and actions. And therefore, it is crucial to guard our hearts above all else. The heart is a powerful force that drives our actions and influences, our thinking, and our behavior. It can either lead us down a path of righteousness or a path of destruction. Our hearts are susceptible to sinful thoughts, attitudes, and beliefs. We must be mindful of what we allow into our hearts because everything we do flows from it. So as we talk about defeating selfishness in our faith community, and we talk about dying to self and being people of humility as we relate to one another instead of destructive pride, we must all commit ourselves to judging our motives very quickly and very carefully, and we must determine that each of us is going to win the battle that is going on in our hearts right now. If we don't dedicate ourselves to that, we are going to engage in destructive thoughts and words and actions that will be just like the warring and the fighting that the writer of Scripture talks about in the first part of chapter 4. So I want us all to pay careful attention to our hearts. I want us to consider what it is we are doing and why we are doing it. And I want us to see whether or not we are truly dying to self or if we are advancing ourselves in a way that is unhealthy and ungodly. Guarding our hearts then is about protecting ourselves from external and internal factors. Guarding our hearts means that we choose to focus on godly thoughts. What does the scripture have to say about this? Well, let me just remind you of what we find over in the book of Philippians chapter 4 and verse 8. Could I read that verse for you? Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, since there is excellence, or if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So those are the things that we are to allow to captivate and dominate our hearts and our minds. And anything that violates those biblical principles, that doesn't meet the standard, then we have to crowd those things out of our hearts and minds and replace them with the things that God says ought to be there. In doing so, of course, we must be seeking after the wisdom and guidance that comes from God. Isn't that what James chapter 1 talks about in verse 5? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask from God who gives to everyone generously and upbraideth 
not. He doesn't scold you for coming. He doesn't demean you for coming. He knows that you desperately need him, and he invites you into that relationship where you are totally dependent upon him. And so we need to seek after him. We need to ask for this wisdom about judging our own hearts and making sure that we are guarding it very carefully. You see, when we guard our hearts, we take responsibility for our mental, psychological, and spiritual well-being. We decide that we're going to own that. We decide that we're not just going to go through life accidentally and whatever happens, happens, but we are going to be deliberate and intentional on taking spiritual growth steps so that our mental and psychological and spiritual well-being are in accordance with the Word of God. And we're going to submit ourselves very willingly to, to passionately pursuing what God has for us in all of those areas instead of what we would have. You see, as we do this, we're going to protect ourselves from sinful influences that will stand in the way of our spiritual progress. Maybe you'd like to turn over to Hebrews chapter 12. I I want to read just a few verses there. It kind of talks about the effort that we're supposed to be putting into this process, and I want to challenge all of us to do just that. Proverbs chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, the scripture says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race that is marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If we go back to the first verse, we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely that, that hinders us, that's how the ESV translates it, that stands in our way and hinders us from making spiritual progress. So I just want you to be very honest with yourself this morning, and I want you to think about it this way. Is there anything in your heart right now that is pulling you away from a humble and obedient walk with Jesus? Is there anything right now that you've allowed into your heart that truly has its roots in pride and self-centeredness that is pulling you away, that is weighing you down in your journey with Jesus, and that is standing in the way of your spiritual growth right now? What is it? Can you identify it? Maybe it has to do with a relationship. You know, we Hopefully we're able to spend time with family and friends over Thanksgiving, but often those times can be painful too because they bring to mind things that that need to be repaired, right, in families. Maybe you had that experience. Maybe holidays are tough for you because of that. And while I don't want to oversimplify and try to cram every little domestic issue into a nice, neat little box, because if anybody knows it doesn't belong there, I do, 
but I want you to consider the relationships that you have with other people. Have you, have you been pulled away due to improperly relating to other people because of selfishness and you see that snare and you see that difficulty and you see that trouble and it truly is a weight that is weighing you down. It's a sin that is easily besetting you from freely walking in your journey with Jesus. Maybe those things are relational for you today. Maybe they're ethical. Are you living an ethical life? A life that stands true to the word of God whereby you've guarded your heart and you have ethics that you live by and you're not compromising your biblical code of ethics because it's convenient or have you? And is that standing in the way of your journey with Jesus today because you have ethical issues? We could continue to list things and I still probably wouldn't deal with what's represented here today in my heart totally and in your heart, but you get the idea. The bigger point is this. It's time for us to do an examination and to call ourselves out for the selfishness that is in our hearts, judging our motives and making sure that we are pure before him. Not considering what everybody thinks about us, but rather being dominated by what God knows about us. Because there is one who knows all. So as we do this, it's important because we're guarding ourselves against these things that will stand in the way of spiritual progress. And in doing so, we are embracing the things that God says he has laid out for us that define what it is he has made us to be. I think of Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. Could I read that verse? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. They are the, they are the manifestation of our faith they are faith in action that the book of James also talks about. Very clearly spells out that faith without works is what? Dead, right? Dead. Non-existent really. Nothing authentic there. But the believer who, who truly knows Jesus and who is cooperating with the Spirit of God in his own sanctification is going to manifest these good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. In other words, as a part of God's sovereign plan, which includes our salvation, he also designed us to be sanctified and to walk in good works for a testimony of his grace to make him famous in the world. Not us. It's not about us. It's about him and his grace. And so as we guard ourselves, we are able to embrace that kind of living. Could I run through some reasons, just a couple here really, that's, that why it's important for us to guard our hearts? The first one is this, because our hearts have a significant impact on our relationship with God. Let me ask you this question. When you've allowed something into your heart that is in direct opposition to God's revealed will for you as found in his word, how does that affect your relationship with God? You know the answer to that as well as I do. It puts an obstacle between you and God. It puts something there that's a strain on the relationship. 
Your time with him is affected if it exists at all, right? And, and your prayer life is hindered if it exists at all. And you've allowed something there in pride and selfishness that, that is an obstacle between you and God because you know that God knows. So going through the motions with him is really a waste of time. The problem is we convince ourselves that that's okay and we continue to go through the motions when we're with the faith community because we want to fool everybody. We don't want anybody to know what's really going on in our lives. And we get really good. And if we're not careful, what happens? We begin to fool even ourselves. And we walk around in this cloud of self-deception that only the pure light of the spirit of truth and grace in our hearts and lives can, can totally eradicate. But that truly is miraculous and a work of grace for someone deep into self-deception to be rescued. Be careful. Be careful. That is a slippery slope. Be careful. Our relationship with God is important. The second reason this is important is because it deals with our relationships with others. Our guarding of our heart right, can certainly draw us closer to others. If we don't, it's going to estrange us. It's going to build up things that, that are truly not found in God's revealed will for us. If we're cultivating self-centeredness in our hearts, and self-centeredness is what defines our relationships, after a while, those relationships will be broken. On the other hand, if we're cultivating what we find over in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32, what does it say? Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And we have other instructions, of course, in that passage, powerful as it is. We won't take the time to look at all of those this morning. But the second biggest reason to guard your heart is because it truly impacts our relationship with others. And if we don't, it's going to impact it negatively. Going back to James 4 and the beginning, where do all these wars and fightings come from that are defining your relationships with other people in the faith community? Where does all that come from? Selfish motivation that manifests itself in selfish living. So what I'm asking you to do this morning and really exhorting you to do is to be your own judge pay careful attention to your heart guard it and when selfishness begins to become attractive and rears its head cut it off die to that and embrace the relationships that God wants you to have casting crowns had a song it's entitled slow fade maybe some of you are aware of it it sounds a warning about guarding our hearts. Could I just read you the lyrics of why it emphasizes why it's so important that we are our own judge and that we're careful and quick to deal with these things? The song goes like this. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. It's the second glance that ties your hands. As darkness pulls the strings, it's a slow fade when you give yourself away. It's a slow fade when black and white have turned to gray and thoughts invade 
Choices are made. A price will be paid when you give yourself away. People never crumble in a day. It's a process, isn't it? It is a process. We decide to give ourselves away to selfishness and sin, or we decide to stand strong in the grace of God and guard our hearts. Guarding our hearts in godly fear is essential for maintaining a healthy relationship with God and others and for maintaining our own spiritual health. It means being intentional about what we allow into our hearts. It involves choosing to focus on thoughts and influences that promote love, kindness, and compassion. It means seeking God's wisdom and guidance through prayer and meditation and allowing His love to flow through us to others. When we exercise discernment and guard our hearts, we experience the joy and blessings that come from living in community with other believers And we become more effective in sharing God's love and truth with the world. Guard your heart. Be your own judge. Secondly, turn away then from the world and give full allegiance to God. Could I ask you to look back there in James chapter 4? Look at verse 4 with me. You adulterous people. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us, but he gives us more grace? That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. You see... When we don't guard our hearts and we allow pride and selfishness to reign there, in essence what is happening is idolatry, which the writer of scripture here calls out as spiritual adultery. And he says, look, you've made a god of yourself. You are going after satisfaction and fulfillment by, by following passionately after your own lusts. It's even affect the way you approach God. It has also affected your relationship with other people because you've been so irresponsible not to guard your heart and your motives. And and now you're committing spiritual adultery because you are worshiping yourself. You are trying to find fulfillment and satisfaction in all of these lusts and desires that you have. And that's where you're sitting right now. And he calls them out for the spiritual adultery as we read it in chapter 4. Truly, destructive to any faith community when it has people who embrace spiritual adultery over integrity in their relationship with God. And every bit of that begins in the heart. That's why we started there with emphasizing it. As we guard our hearts in this process, we have to turn away from everything that our downstream culture is telling us is worth it. You see, we are truly going upstream in a downstream world. And we have to turn away from this worldliness that is, that is truly attractive to the residue of the depravity that still is in us that we wrestle with every day in the renewal process. We have to turn away from the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life and give our full allegiance to God. 
passionately pursuing him for all of the satisfaction and fulfillment that he has to offer. And I would add to that that he exclusively offers. You can't find it anywhere else. What does this friendship with the world look like? And what does that even mean? Well, it's important to define the word world, of course. In some contexts, this refers to the earth, the planet, or the human race. And in other contexts, like James chapter 4, it refers to sinful people's collective sins, evil tendencies, cravings, false beliefs, rebellion, etc. The world in this context is where we get the phrase worldliness, which is, of course, a reference to sinfulness. And so everything that makes up that system that is opposed to God, that is rebellious against God, any idea, any thought, any word, any action that stands in contradiction to the character and nature of a holy God, that that offers itself as a cheap substitute for satisfaction. That's what we're talking about. That's what worldliness is, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of of life. It transcends cultural things. Don't get hung up on cultural things. Staying away from certain cultural things. No, that, that isn't the whole story. Now, there certainly are some sinful manifestations in cultural things, but the real enemy is not cultural things. Those things change. So if you get hung up on cultural things, your list of do's and don'ts is going to fluctuate depending on what culture does. And that isn't who gets to decide what worldliness is. God gets to decide what worldliness is. And he's done it very well in his word by defining it for us as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. If you focus on those things that appeal to who you are without God, that appeal to the residue of your depravity, that present themselves as cheap substitutes for satisfaction, you will steer clear of worldliness no matter how long you live, regardless of what is happening with cultural things, because you will be governing yourselves according to the eternal, never-changing truth of the Word of God. So be careful with how you define worldliness and how you decide to conduct yourselves. Often Christians have gotten caught in the trap of cultural things, and deciding that certain things were wrong because the world wears them, goes there, or does them. And that is not the right way to decide those things. Be careful with that. Don't fall into that trap. As we resist this and turn away from the world, what true worldliness is, we need to submit in this to God's revealed will and resist Satan while repenting of all known sin. Could I draw your attention back to our text passage, picking it up there in verse number 7. Submit yourselves then to God. Don't be this person of pride who worships themselves, who practices spiritual adultery. No, submit to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Submit yourselves and resist. 
give yourself over. It, it has the idea, and some people think it was maybe as the original audience would have read this terminology, they may have thought of it in a, in a military framework. No way to prove that, but some people think that, that perhaps the original audience would have interpreted this through that lens. Always be careful with reading that into Scripture, but it's possible. The idea of lining up and, and being in line as you would in a, in a military formation perhaps or as you would in any type of, of military situation where you were lining up under your commanding officer, so to speak. That's what it means to submit to God. He is the commander to carry forth the illustration. He is the one under whom we are to line up and submit to everything about his revealed will for us. And then, of course, resisting Satan. And as we resist him, he is going to flee from us. This idea of resisting Satan. Can I just give you a few things that it involves? We can't amplify these things at all, but let me just get your, your minds thinking and your hearts focused on these things. How do you resist Satan? Well, I think the first thing that that takes is that you have to be ruled by Scripture. Isn't that the example that Jesus gave us in his own temptation? He was so quick to know and apply and quote Scripture in the situation. And he serves as a great example to us. He anchored to, to the eternal truth of his word, of the word of the Father. And he uses that. It was truly the sword of the Spirit. It needs to be our sword. It is the only offensive weapon in the armor of God that we know of there in Ephesians chapter 6. That's what's to rule us. It truly is to be our only rule of faith and practice. Don't just let that easily roll off of your tongue. That phrase finds its way into many church statements of faith and creeds. And rightfully so. But it's much easier said than it is practice. What's ruling you today? Is it scripture? Are you truly taking the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God? Are you armed with that in the armor of God? And are you living every day in submission to the truth that is found in the word of God? The sad fact is that most believers today have never read the entire thing through. Think about that with me. And, and ask yourself the question, have I ever taken the 66 books that we call the Bible and have I ever read them cover to cover? Have I ever even done that one time? One time. Let alone doing it enough to be familiar with it. I mean, I don't know if you're like me, but every time I study to preach, I may be studying a passage that I've preached before, and I'll, I'll notice something that I never noticed before. In fact, maybe I've preached the thing 10 times, and I'm reading the same passage like, whoa, where was that 10 times ago, right? It's not just reading it through one time, but it's actually becoming familiar with it. How can something dominate your life if we're not familiar with it? We point out a lot of sin as Christians, and we're, we're, we are horrified by sin. 
We, we see it in the world around us. It turns our stomach. We see it in the church. It, it causes us concern. But what about the sin of not being familiar with God's revealed will? Isn't that egregious? Is that egregious to anyone? Does that cause anyone unrest? Does that cause anyone concern? Does, I love what our passage talks about. We're going to get there in a minute. It, mourning and grief, the scripture even says wailing in that passage. Does it, does it really bother us that, that we don't know? That we're not familiar with his revealed will for us? How then can we say with any authenticity that it is our only rule of faith and practice if we're not familiar with it? How can we say that? The truth is we can say it, but it doesn't mean much if it's not true and authentic. Beware of grieving the Holy Spirit. Ephesians talks about that. Labor for wisdom. There is a great difference between knowledge and wisdom, between accumulating facts and applying Scripture to those facts. Resist the first stirring of temptation when you first feel yourself or know or sense that you're being pulled away by something that is contrary to the character and nature of God, resist it. Put it to death. Someone said that he that will play with Satan's bait will quickly be taken with Satan's hook. How true. Yield to the Spirit, truly be filled by the Spirit, dominated by the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. Cultivate humility in your heart. Always be on guard. Don't ever let your guard down. We were talking in leadership development this morning during the Sunday school hour. We were, we've been looking at the passage there of Paul talking to Timothy about elders who rule well, being worthy of double honor. And then it goes on to talk about sinning elders and those that are sinning in that way and how you're supposed to handle that situation and we were talking about people who have had a rather high profile in, in the world and who have stayed true. For a change, we were talking about those who haven't fallen rather than those who have. And we talked about the, the guidelines that many of these people would live by. We, we were specifically talking about Billy Graham and George Beverly Say and Cliff Barrows today, how they had dedicated and committed themselves to a certain code and one of the things that they had really honed in on was making sure that they were going to protect the integrity of their morality, right? And so one of the rules that they lived by, which apparently they did because I don't know of any scandal there, never to be alone with someone of the opposite sex unless it was your wife. And so they dedicated themselves to that. They lived that out. Some of the decisions that they made may have appeared to be extreme to some, rigid to others, legalistic to even more. Well, I say, so be it. We need to constantly be on guard. We're living in a culture, even a church culture, that has decided that because of grace, this isn't as important as it used to be. And we can revel in God's grace. Sure, I'm all for that. But can we grieve and mourn about our sin? Can we dedicate ourselves to be constantly on guard so that we don't sin? 
Instead of just, oops, I had a lapse in judgment and God forgives me. Now, I'm not demeaning his grace and I'm not trampling on his forgiveness. But I guess I'm just saying along with the Apostle Paul, right? Is it good for us to say that because grace abounds, I can sin? And he says, of course, God forbid. Make sure that you're walking with God as well. Schedule that time. Protect that time. Someone put it this way, a soul high in communion with God may be tempted, but will not easily be conquered. Such a soul will fight it out to the death. And of course, don't engage Satan in your own strength and pray constantly. These things will help us to resist Satan. I want us to go back to our text there in chapter 4 because as we submit ourselves to God and resist Satan we need to be involved in repentance. A godly sorrow of course precedes that repentance and I think that's what the writer of scripture is talking about. Look at the scripture with me there in verse number 8 toward the end of the verse. It says grieve, mourn, and wail and change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Because their hands were in need of washing and their hearts were in need of purifying as the earlier part of verse 8 reveals to us. And then verse 9 talks about this emotional response to sin. That's how you put selfishness to death. When we remember who we are really, without all the veneer, without all the polish, without all the go-to-church stuff that we put on today to impress people here, just who we are before God. When we remember that and we don't forget that, we can't help but be humble. You see, it's when we think more highly of ourselves than we should that we will struggle with selfishness. But when we have this reminder and we allow this to set in our minds and we set in it and we understand who we are in need of purification and constant cleansing, that will help us in our guarding of our heart and being selfless. We won't be setting up rivals between us and others because we'll see everyone in the same spot in desperate need of the redemptive grace of God. Finally, and we'll close, we need then, of course, to stop judging others. Stop warring among yourselves and fighting, setting yourself up as someone else's judge. Pay attention to yourself. Make sure you are walking with the Lord. Look at verse 11 of chapter 4. Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy. But you, who are you to judge your neighbor? Stop judging each other. Stop picking at each other. Stop setting yourself up as being the spiritual superior of others in the church. Typically what happens in a church when this is going on 
is we, we make as a standard our preferences and our opinions. Very few fights, as we understand, in churches are, are happening over things that are worth fighting over, things that are worth confronting over. Instead, we allow our preferences and opinions to be elevated to the same level as thus saith the Lord. And then we expect everyone else to submit to our desires. And selfishness runs rampant, and so does destruction in the faith community where that kind of thing is embraced and tolerated. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for loving us perfectly and showing us that love through Jesus. Thank you for straightforward passages like what we have in James 4. God, I pray that it would humble us today. I pray that it would humble us today. Bring us to the point where we can actually mourn and grieve and wail about our sin. Help sin to matter to us as much as it matters to you and help us to hate it as much as you hate it. May we be at rest and at peace in this faith community. May we be passionately pursuing satisfaction in you and you alone instead of worldliness. God, do, do a work in and among those who are here today and those who are watching. Do it for your glory and nothing else. In Jesus' name, amen.